This podcast is brought to you by The Empowerment Project. Research proves that empowerment self-defense training makes you safer, period. I want you to have a great self-defense toolkit so you can create strong boundaries, speak with confidence, and take up all the space that you deserve in the world. We'll hear stories from survivors and find out what worked for them and why. We'll interview leaders in the field and talk about tips, concepts, and really easy things that you could do to make yourself safer and interrupt the cycle of violence. I've taught self-defense classes for over 30 years, and I promise to teach you everything I know. Ultimately, I'm going to want you to get some in-person training, but a great empowerment self-defense class is more than just the physical skills. The list of things I want to teach you is endless, so let's get to it. My name is Sylvia Smart, and welcome to The Empowerment Project. Hello, listeners. I'm excited to introduce you to today's guest, Magdalena Dircio Diaz. Magdalena works with the Office of Student Affairs at Cal State University in Orange County. I first came to know of Magdalena through the National Women's Martial Arts Federation, also called the NWMAF, and she and a colleague were presenting their work about decolonization to a group of martial artists and empowerment self-defense instructors. They were brilliant, and their work is really important. I listened and took notes, hoping I'd be able to get one or both of them as guests here on the Empowerment Podcast by Naga. So today we have Magdalena Dircio Diaz. Magdalena, welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here and going to spend some time with us. Yes, I'm excited. Awesome. Well, I I would love for you to share about uh, before we like jump into the topic a little bit about your personal journey um, with our listeners. Tell us about your early life and your teen years, your early adulthood, and how all the things life brought you and the choices you've made have shaped you into being who you are today. And that's a huge question. So, <laughs> so you know, just take it and run with it. Tell us whatever you want us to know. We're all, all ears. Right. You stop me because I might not <laughs> be able to stop myself. Okay. So hello, everyone that's listening. I'm really excited to be here. Um, so a little bit about myself. I um, I was born in Mexico City. Uh, my mom was a teen mom. Um, and uh, I lived in Mexico for about six years. Uh, my grandparents first migrated, well, my grandma migrated, um, fleeing domestic violence um, to the United States. And then, um, like it's very typical in a lot of um, immigrant community, uh, families, she then brought over to the U.S. the rest of her family, uh, including my mom, myself, my stepdad, and my brother, who was nine months at that time. Um, so we came to the U.S. I think that was my first, I think, when I talk about decolonizing the work and how conversation impacts all areas of our life, obviously from the birth, I think that was one of the more um, salient um, experiences that I had in regards to colonization and displacement, um, having to cross a border at six years old. I think I talk a lot about how that was the first time, you know, as a six-year-old that I lost a lot of that innocence that come with being a child um, yeah. when you have to experience something like that. Uh, and my brother was nine months old at the time. Oh, boy. Um, so we came to the U.S. and we lived in Santa Ana, which is a community in Orange County that is not the Orange County you see in TV. Um, <laughs> it is predominantly Latinx, uh, predominantly um, migrant families, um, working poor families, um, and I lived the majority of my adult life there. Um, and so, you know, I, I talk about migration as one of the foundations in the work that I do because I really shaped, I think, where I ended up landing professionally as the oldest um, child in an immigrant household. Um, I took on that responsibility of kind of being an advocate for the rest of my family. Mm -hmm. um, I am the oldest daughter, the oldest cousin. Um, 
And so I, at a very young age, I start, I had to learn how to navigate different systems, um, learn a language, right? And uh, kind of be like a spokesperson for my family. Um, and uh, because in my communities, um, all we saw really when it came to professions was like law enforcement or social workers or therapists as like the pinnacle of success. Um, I actually had a great therapist in elementary and that really was like, I want to do that. Right. Like those were the the careers, career choices we had growing up mm-hmm. that made you feel like I can help my community and I can also be successful. Um, and I, I, I knew since I was a little kid that I wanted to go into the helping profession. Um, I graduated high school still being undocumented and I graduated um, before we had things like DACA. So there was not a lot of help um, in regards to going to college. And my parents and my grandparents came together um, so I could go to college. I went to Cal State Long Beach, which is located about 30 minutes from where I live. So I always lived at home. Um, and while I was there, I thought I wanted to go into therapy. Uh, but then I had that reality of, um, grad school and not that my parents were not going to be able to pay for that tuition. Plus being undocumented, I ended up hitting that wall of like, you know, I go to grad school, I get my license, but then I won't be able to get a job. Um, and, and which was very complicated for me because education was always a priority in my home. Like there was never a question that I would go to college. Um, but then at the same time, I was like, but I'm not, I can't get a job once I graduate. Um, so I used to want to be a therapist. Um, I had seen a lot of the ways that uh, interpersonal violence affected my communities and just systemic violence. At that time, I didn't have the language for that, but systemic racism and systemic violence and how that impacts our homes and the violence we see um, in our families. Um, I saw it more displays in, or displayed in like uh, addictions. So I used to want to work with um, youth and people, children that um, were impacted by addictions. Um, and that was my goal. And while I was in college, someone had a mentor that encouraged me to try something that I was not interested in, just to, you know, try it out. Um, and I also needed to do an uh, internship. Um, and it was really difficult for me to find an internship because of my immigration status. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was able to find an internship, which is now in retrospect is funny and scary at the same time. Um, I ended up getting an internship that was a collaboration with the women's shelter and the superior court. Um, which years later I found out that when I walked in to get my uh, life scan or um, my background check, I walk into a federal building not knowing that I could be detained. Uh, But again, I didn't know. I didn't know a lot of people that or um, it was not something that we talked about being undocumented and finding resources. Um, So I walked in, you know, all excited and not realizing where I had walked in. Um, so I got this internship um, and it was a collaboration with a women's shelter and it was working with survivors of domestic violence through the criminal process. Um, I had no real interest at that time. Again, I had experienced a lot of violence. I'm a survivor of um, sexual violence and then uh, family violence. Um, and I knew it more on a personal level. Um, I never thought that's what I wanted to do. Um, and even within my own community, um, I think the reason why I love what I do is that I also, part of decolonizing was decolon- decolonizing myself and deconstructing the ideas I held. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was raised with a stereotypical view of these issues in regards to like, you know, when it comes specifically domestic violence that, you know, people have the choice to leave and they don't leave because they don't want to leave. Um, so when I first started the internship, I still had some of those ideas um and I walked into that courthouse and I honestly first hated being there like I was like this is not for me this is not what I want to do and still didn't understand the complexity of the problem Um, but that internship changed my life and you know that's why I'm here today um I always tell the story of um the one person that changed my life and there was a survivor that um showed up to court so I was supporting people through the criminal court process. And it typically was during arraignment. Um, 
So a lot of times, um, if you're familiar with DV domestic violence work, um, when law enforcement is involved, it's typically in that fight or flight, you know, stage. And either the survivor calls because they're just trying to, you know, survive, or it's a child or a neighbor. After the the incident occurs and the crisis, typically there's a feeling of like, no, you know, I don't want law enforcement to get involved. I don't want the person to get arrested. And unnecessarily because they don't want the person to be harmed, the harm doer be, um, have consequences, but more because it's so layered, right? To right. be a DV survivor and then you see the consequences if the person gets arrested. Um, and if, you know, I depend on their income, there's just so many layers. Yeah. I remember the survivor walking in and um, she she showed up by herself and she was petrified. And at that time, I still didn't understand it. I was 22 at this time, right? I also, like, I had experienced violence, but I was still young. And this survivor, like, I I was shocked that she was so scared. And I was like, isn't this the safest places you, place you can be, right? Like, the, mm. the harm doer is in custody, right? There's officers here like this person cannot hurt you um but she was still petrified and I remember walking out because she ran out of the courthouse and I walked out and I got to her and I said hey like you know explain who I was and she told me how scared she was and I was like well you know and I think that was the first time that I realized how domestic violence worked right and it wasn't just the mm-hmm. physical the sort of physical violence but the emotional right. um the fear like by just a look right and you'll if you work with dv survivors they will tell you like i just knew the way they looked at me yeah what that meant and she told me this and i was like well you know we don't have to wait inside the courtroom we can wait outside i can sit here with you i'll let them know and she was like okay and so yeah we sat outside i went inside told the bailiff you know we're outside we're gonna be waiting that was, you know, that was my part of my internship. And I sat outside, you know, because also the process is so lengthy. You can sit there for hours. I just sat outside with her for a few hours and we were just talking, right? Like, I mean, I gave her resources, but we're just kind of talking, not really anything like to do with the case. And, you know, a few hours pass by, bailiff comes out and says, you know, he was charged with like the, the usual, right? And I turn over and read the criminal protective order to her, to the survivor, um, go over resources again. And um, obviously this was pre-COVID, right? But she turned around and hugged me. And she's like, thank you so much, right, for what you did. And in my head, I was like, I didn't do anything. Like, I literally just sat here. Um, and that really was the changing point for me. Um, I think that's when it really hit home that, how much people just need someone to be there right not really to tell them what to do um you know but just to be there a lot of people have to show up on their own to these cases there's all this outside noise telling them what they should and shouldn't do Um, and there's also a lot of mixed complex feelings regarding like the person that caused them harm and that's when I realized that there was you know this this whole world where I can support people in a way that um there was no expectation, right? And it also helped me understand, again, the complexity of dating or domestic violence. Um, so after, like, again, I stayed in that internship for like a year after me feeling like I don't want to do this. Um, and then I graduated college and I was still undocumented, so I couldn't really get into the field. Um, I had a child, got married, you know, and then I was able to adjust my status. Um, and it just made sense, and it was what I had experience in. And then I started doing more D, uh, DV advocacy work or domestic violence advocacy, did legal work. And I share this because it's also part of like my unlearning. Even though I'm very proud of like the legal work that I did, um, at that time I also didn't realize, and which is a very hard thing to accept for a lot of people that are in the anti-violence movement, the harm that we might have replicated by pushing these ideas onto survivors of what is the the thing that they should be doing or what is the safe option for them. Because I specifically work with survivors seeking restraining orders, which in retrospect, so many survivors don't have access or it's not the safest thing for them to do. Um, And so I worked at a nonprofit doing legal work, um, 
you know, we, I co-created a uh, project with the courthouse where we were providing advocacy services five days a week. Um, we were reaching about over like a thousand survivors a year, just doing restraining orders. Um, so it's something that I'm still very proud of, but again, it's, again, the, the unlearning and deconstructing of what it means to be in the anti-violence movement. This way that the system um, especially is ignorant of or blind to all of the nuances and creates these little boxes that people who are having trauma, who are having um, crisis, who are living in fear have to fit themselves into instead of like what you were able to do with that woman was sit there, be with her, listen, and just walk with her instead of trying to tell her, do this, do that. You should feel this way. You should not feel this way. What's next is this. Yeah. And even it's beautiful. Yeah. Story. And I think now that I think back at it, right, with the experience I have, it's even deconstructing what as a service provider or someone that wants to help, right, or support survivors, what our roles are, um, especially, like, you know, you're mm-hmm. like, okay, like, you have a plan, right? And I talk about this when I talk about self-defense, like, we go in there with a, you know, a class plan. Um, this is what I need to teach in order for me to feel like I was successful mm-hmm. or that I actually helped the person. Um, but then you walk into these spaces and that's not what they need. And it's okay to let go of that plan. Like, Success isn't meeting that class plan, right? It's meeting the need of that person you're working with or with those students you're working with, um, which at the time I didn't understand, right? And, and I mean, I understand that it's also difficult if you work for an organization and things like that because there's like numbers to meet because of grants, because of finan- you know all the things that you need in order to keep agencies running. So I understand that there's an expectation, right, of like check the box to show that we are providing the services that we need. And I think that's part of like why decolonizing is so important because we shouldn't be just checking a box, right? In order for um, programs and services to be funded. Um, Well, I think if I can just jump in for a sec, I think this was what was so exciting to me about the work that you're doing, which is uh, the way that I, as a cisgendered white woman, would come into a space with people of different backgrounds and um, colors of skin and gender identities and impose upon everyone what I think is best, you know, what what I think you need. I mean, that's what you're talking about. And so when, as you talk about this concept of decolonization, it's, it's just a really exciting way to think about looking at a situation like that from a completely different perspective. And we're going to talk about decolonization um, and how, in in particular, how it impacts empowerment, self-defense, and those of us who teach, those of us who want to teach, and those who maybe Mm -hmm. don't want to teach but are listening to this podcast because they want to feel empowered and they want tools for their self-defense toolkits. But I think this conversation is really important. But before we delve in, um, I'd like to talk with you about colonization um, first, um, unless there's something else that you uh, that you were, I didn't no, want to interrupt okay. <laughs> but I, no, maybe I did. So if I did, like, let's keep going with whatever your thought was. Um, I just wanted to make that point that it's like so exciting and cool what you're talking about. Um, or we can jump in and and just go for the, you know, what is colonization? Yeah. And... Um, I mean, I think the only thing I want, I wanted to add, and we might be discussing this later is, you know, entering empowerment, self-defense, and then seeing the ways, the barriers that I experienced as someone that wanted to become a trainer mm-hmm. uh, or a self-defense instructor um, and how that really pushed what I needed to say in regards to like how even spaces like that also need to be decolonized to make them more accessible, not only yeah. for the participants, but also for trainers and instructors. Um, but yeah, like it was just yeah. a journey of like continuing to wanting to add tools to the toolbox of advocacy and anti-violence work that I was doing um, and empowering self-defense, even though initially 
I was apprehensive because there is a level of, um, you know, concerns in a lot of the anti-violence movement about like, what are we teaching when we teach empowerment self-defense? Um, it really also redefined that, you know, so many indigenous folks or so many marginalized folks have been using self-defense to be here today to survive. So there's a huge connection for me uh, for the anti-violence movement and self-defense in a way that I think before I wasn't able to see. And that was part of also decolonizing that, that it, like people have been resisting for, you know, for centuries. Uh, for <laughs> centuries, for like way, really yes. long time. So, yeah. Really long So I think time. that was it, just kind of. And surviving. Yeah, surviving and the hope that we yeah. will get to a point where we can not just survive, but thrive. But yeah, so I, that's kind of my yeah. journey into you know, doing advocacy, doing legal work, and now still being an anti-violence movement, but adding empowerment, self-defense. So since this is like, oh, this is such a big concept, colonization, what is it and how would you describe this to listeners? I think sometimes people think of colonization as something that happened like years ago, way back in history, like, you know, eons and eons ago. So as you talk about this, can you also kind of shed some light on how colonization lives and breathes today, how it is alive and well today in our culture? Not, It's not just a thing of the past. Yeah, so that's a really great point. I think when we, again, when colonization for some people feels very um, a polarized, um, you know, topic. Um but it's just the reality of, for people, right? Some people have been impacted and they don't get a choice to talk about it or not talk about it. That it's literally has every has had every impact in all aspects of their life. So yeah, we think of colonization mm-hmm. with Christopher Columbus, right? Um, arriving and taking ownership of land um, that was already, you know, belonged to people. Um, and, and people think about it in the past, right? Something that maybe our ancestors did and it was horrible but we we're not there anymore uh, but the reality of the colonization continues to exist through so many aspects of our life and I can again talk for hours about that but I think ones that are more mm-hmm. um, specific to anti-violence or even empowerment self-defense is through like the um, criminal system right or the prison system that we have right it's all been embedded in regards to colonization and, and how laws are created um, and who's in prison and who's not, which has a huge connection with empowerment self-defense because we talk about how people have a right to defend themselves. Um, but because of colonization and laws, there's only certain people that have a right to defend themselves. Um, we mm-hmm. have so many black and brown women that are in prison right now for using the right to, to self-defense. Um, and then we have yeah. white men that get to walk away free um, and claim self-defense. So the conversation is still alive through our prison system, right? It's alive through also the wellness um, world and like things like when we talk about self-defense and going into regions and saying like, we're going to these regions to help people um, to learn how to defend themselves. Um, When a lot of these regions that people look as like underdeveloped or that they need help, they've been doing these things Um, because I'm, um, Latina, I like to talk about like the Zapatista movement in Mexico and Central America, which is a movement of indigenous folks that are trying to reclaim their land and protect their land from the government and from um, other like um, organized crime. And they practice self-defense, um, right? And, and for them, colonization is a lot more alive because they've been pushed out, like their language has been taken away from them, you know, from the way we, what we eat, to the language we speak, to how we dress, that's all part of colonization. So there's people that have been doing this and then we have groups that come into these spaces and say, we wanna teach something new and they're colonizing this space, right? They're going to these regions and taking up space and taking up resources um, and not really helping the people. And that again, we are recolonizing these spaces um, through this lens of going to help. Um, so those are some of the ways that we see colonization still impacting our spaces. And that is not something from the past um, in regards to accessibility, right? Colonization impacts what we deem as a, a body worthy of movement, right? Um, 
And so bodies that don't look like what the ideal body, you know, under these ideas should look like, um, sometimes they're not able to access self-defense or the, the way we teach is not accessible to them. Um, so again, I think for me, conversation is in everything. I mean, it's who I am, right? And I think that's one of the also really complex parts of co- talking about conversation because also we wouldn't be here. Like I myself am a, even again, I was born in Mexico. I'm a woman of color, but I also have, you know, European descendants, just like I have indigenous descendants. So I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. Um, so it's very difficult to have this conversation, but it, I'm also very aware of like, because I'm more of a visibly, um, I'm more visible in like my skin tone and things like that, that how I access these spaces are impacted by these things. Right. There are so many nuances that you're bringing up. And one of my questions about this was on a kind of where you're headed, where you were just, what you were just talking about uh, on a personal level, like as someone who has experienced colonization firsthand and who thinks about this and engages with people around this concept, can you talk a little bit about what that might look and feel like, especially within the context of power and politics, like on a day-to-day in your life? Yeah. I mean, I have worked really hard, right, to be in a place where I, you know, I've, you know, I've been really blessed that people have been willing to share knowledge. I always thank the survivors that I work with because a lot of my knowledge comes from, you know, what they taught me. And I have all this experience and knowledge, but because of the way I look, I enter spaces and people question, right? Or they don't see me as someone with authority. Um, so that's the, like I have to prove myself 10 times more, right? Um, because when I walk in, people don't see somebody that they feel represents an anti-violence movement or a self-defense instructor. Um, and, you know, when we talk about politics and, you know, where we are right now, specifically in the United States, but, you know, I talk about, you know, being someone that migrated here and always feeling like the displacement, right? And that being a core part of my identity not feeling like you belong in either space, right? I mean, colonization to me is like, I grew up in the US and because of borders that were created and who was given power, like I'm technically not uh, an American, right? Whatever that might mean. Um, But Mm -hmm. I don't belong in, like, this is my home. Like I, I remember going through the citizenship process and feeling like it was very, most people are very, happy when that happens right and there's so much good emotions there were so many negative emotions for me because I didn't understand why I had to do this step when I've lived in this country my whole life you know I speak the language I you know like it so those are the ways that I you know I see it in the the everyday right and how it impacts my identity um the politics that exists now even like when teaching empowerment self-defense like it's it's difficult to have these conversations because we know that um you know using self-defense to defend our bodies brown and black bodies could mean that we end up in jail um so it's hard it's hard to be in those spaces where we we say you have a right to defend yourself but then in reality the world is telling us we don't have a right to defend ourselves and our bodies have been used and harmed um, without any repercussion. Right. And the consequences can be so steep. Yeah. It's a heavy topic. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to it. There's a lot to, lot to really think through. And, um, you know, I think we will continue to talk a little bit about colonization as we flip it and talk about decolonization and how you go about the business of identifying and challenging all of it from the little hidden tendrils that are just tucked away um, in, in the smallest 
reaches of the mind to these outright blatant obvious behaviors and systems. And then there's everything in between. So like, it's so huge. We could talk about it yeah. for days, but um, with regards to decolonization, like how, how does it start and where do you begin? And um, yeah, how, how do you want to yeah. talk about it? How do you talk I, about it? I will it? speak from a personal because I also like I don't like to define give a definition of decolonizing because I think that only replicates colonization when we're trying to give a name to something that Mm -hmm. is just the way of living right for some people so for me decolonizing the work that I do and and this and trying to spread the word of like why it's important in every space that I enter um I think one of the core you know, philosophies behind my way of decolonizing is centering the lived experiences of people that, you know, you're working with. There's this whole idea that theory and academics and like, you know, what is deemed like knowledge um, is typically aligned with white ideology and ancestral knowledge is not seen as, you know, knowledge. So for me, it's centering my own lived experience and centering the experiences of the people that I'm working with. Um, one way that I decolonize my work is by getting rid of this idea of what professionalism is, um, because I think in a, the anti-violence movement for a long time, you could only be either a professional or a survivor. You couldn't be both. You can speak about your survivorship um, because it was deemed as like a deficit, right? Like, and to me, it's like the reason why I do this work and the knowledge that I have is because of my survivorship. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of people, right, coming into spaces is like I'm speaking from a place of how I was harmed and what I learned through that. So that's one part of decolonizing the anti-violence movement for me and specifically empowerment, empowerment, self-defense. It's blurring that binary or those lines between like one or the other where we come in with all our experiences um, yes, the trainings that we might take, but also our lived experiences. Um, and I think that's like the big focus for me when I talk about decolonizing, centering the lived experiences over any theory or any academic, you know, journal. Well, it's what you were talking about right at the beginning. It's sitting there and being present and listening. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot more to yeah. it, but, but it, it just reminds me back to that experience that you had, which was so informative to you where, you know, somebody felt like they were in a little box and it was scary and they hated it and you listened and you were present and you took them outside to a place that felt safer and you, you yeah. sat with them. Because, you know, if you think of like the way that we've been taught to provide services is well, first, some diagnosis, right? Like, what is this person experiencing? What textbook did I read about, like, you know, the cycle of violence that applies to this specific moment? But then you're not present. You're not in that moment. You're not listening. You're trying to have that person fit your idea of what it means to be a survivor, like, you know, a survivor or a person that has experienced trauma with the goal to, like, you are going to help them move along, right? And so Mm -hmm. then you don't actually get to listen to people and understand that, you know, that person might not view themselves as a victim because, again, they've experienced so much in their life that this is just a speck of what they've had to live through. Um, So, yeah, I agree with you about that moment being so crucial because you're breaking away from that. Like, let me write down my notes. Right. Let me see what what characteristics are showing of an abused person. Uh, and just being with that person as a person yourself, like breaking away those power dynamics of facilitator or service provider and victim and just being with each other. Oh, that's so powerful. That's really powerful. Um, just as someone who's a like cisgendered white woman to, you know, to to go into a space and to be fully present and wholehearted is um, is what I'm called to do 
it's also courageous in a way. Um, how do I want to say this? I, because I'm exposing myself to my stupidity (laughs) (laughs) or like my unconscious bias or the way the questions I haven't yet asked myself or the things I don't know yet. And to show up as an instructor and be willing to show that piece of myself as an empowerment self-defense teacher, it's also super freeing because then that's where the relationships can really happen and the real teaching can be for for everyone in the room. Me too. Knowledge is co-created, right? It's not one person holds the knowledge and passing it out, but we could, because I, again, I always, when people ask, I always think all the survivors I've ever worked with because the knowledge I am sharing today was Mm co-created by all these people that I've met And, you know, my ancestors, my grandmother, who was is a survivor, my mother, who's a survivor, like all the empowering women in my life that have experienced, like we've all co-created this. Um, and I think once we allow ourselves to, to accept that, I think that's when we move forward. I think this power dynamic, even within the anti-violence movement of like who holds power or what is the right way and the wrong way you know, I'm a good person because I'm doing good work. It also like sometimes blinds us to the, that we could also cause harm. Like, no, we talk about, you've been really mentioning your privilege, right? But I could sit here and talk about all the ways, all my, the identities that have, all of my identities that have been marginalized. Um, It's a lot harder for me to, for anyone to sit and also talk about our privilege, right? I, even though I'm part of the community I work with, I also have the privilege of being having access to an education, right, which gives me time to be able to sit down and have these conversations. There are women that are just trying to survive, right, that they don't have right. the time right. to sit and, and have these conversations. Um, I have the privilege of also being cisgender, heterosexual. So a lot of the services that are out there were designed for people like me, right? And even though... I experience violence at a higher rate because I'm a woman of color. Um, I don't have the same fears that a trans woman or a trans person has. So I think that's also part of decolonizing the, the structure of like either you only hold power. Again, it's all about deconstructing the binary and deconstructing either this or that. Mm-hmm. It's being able to hold the truth that, yes, I've been marginalized and I've been harmed because of these identities. But also I hold some you know, some privilege and how do I navigate that? It's great, great questions. And um, I think one that all of us can benefit from thinking about, reading about, um, talking with others about, you know, listening to. um, What do you, do you have any, um, any great resources that you want to share with people like book to read or a podcast to listen to or like things that you found helpful that you've read or articles or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, one of the books that really helped me with a lot of the work that I do, it's called The Revolution Starts at Home. Um, and it's it, I, I like the book because it talks about all the ways that communities have been healing outside of like this you know, idea of what services exist, but it talks about healing when harm occurs within even these spaces that are supposed to be preventing violence. Um, because I think, again, we start at home, right? This has to start within ourselves, within the communities that we're part mm-hmm. of. So that's a really great um, book that I recommend to people. So Magdalena, when um, I got to observe be part of uh, participate in your presentation you made a really beautiful connection between decolonization and spirituality and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that yeah I think there again going back to this idea of professionalism or what healing looks like right like we can talk about like the healing part of it or even like as an instructor what professionalism looks like and we tend to forget that the soft parts of us that really are 
what's going to make a difference in this work and a difference in our healing, which is the spiritual part. Um, allowing yourself to be guided by your instinct, which a lot of times is connected to your ancestors and the way they're um, protecting you and guiding you. Um, and so, and even in the healing, right, like there's a lot of people that, you know, might not have access to therapy, but they have a relationship with spirits or they pray and that's their way of healing. And there's, there's no reason why we should feel like that's less than, right? And so in some of the empowerment self-defense work that we do with my co-facilitator, there's we use five principles and one of them is tell right and when I was trained tell meant call the police which (laughs) I was very taken back by that um because that's not always it's not always safe it's not always accessible (laughs) and you know depending on who the Mm -hmm. person that causes you harm and what you look like you know like there's so many layers and then that you know now that's changed to like go get help or you know, building communities. Um, But, you know, for some people, that's even that is not accessible, right? And we talk when we break down tell we say, you know, if you, you have, you know, you pray to your ancestors, you have a connection with this, that's, you can tell them, right? That is part of healing. Um, Telling the people that mean something to you, and sometimes it's people that are no longer here, or that, you know, saints or gods or whatever you believe in the the universe mother earth that you tell this happened to me can be so validating and again that's just about giving choices because we make an assumption assumption that everyone has somebody that they can rely on and for some of us the people we rely on are no longer here um so centering that part of us that is not just about the physical realm but you know, other spirits that guide us um, can really be life-changing and just reinforces that people have already had these tools. I mean, that they've already done this, right? And we see this a lot in a lot of indigenous communities that they, you know, before a big decision or when there's a challenge, they connect with the spirits or the spiritual world. Um, and it's, it's worked for them. And why are we trying to erase that part of us? Um, is something that I, I think we really need to start reclaiming. Love it. Yes, exactly. That there's already a richness, a connection. Uh, there's nothing to fix here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I mean, what I'm trying to say is like, there's strength yeah. here to find it, to see it, to respect it, to notice it, to call it out. Speaking of which, language. Um, I think this is a huge part of decolonization work as as you were mentioning. Can you talk a little bit about that, that connection between language and decolonization? It's yeah, I, I for me, so again, I, I don't have a definition for decolonizing because I feel like that's personal. But one of my pillars in decolonizing is language. Language is so powerful. With language, we create violence. We create spaces where violence can exist. Um, We reinforce ideas where harm can be reproduced. Um, We create who the dominant discourse, who has access to things, who doesn't, what the world should look like. But with language, we can also deconstruct that. And being aware of that and being aware of the language you use and allowing for space for, again, co-creation of what feels safe and healthy through language is so crucial. I know, I feel like we can all probably have an experience of like, you went to the doctor or you, you know, whatever. And someone said something in a way that just didn't feel right for you. And you completely shut down. Right. Like it's so powerful and we Mm -hmm. don't realize that. And to me, like even, you know, again, going back to the five points of self-defense, it's one of the ways I incorporate language is we already have these five principles and we try to make them as easy and as accessible as possible, but it still might not be accessible for people. So we tell people like, you tell me what this means to you. You tell me how this word is used. 
it's reclaiming also the words that have been used to to continue harming us. So I always use as an example in the Latinx community. There's a term. It's um it's a Spanish word. It's called chisme, and it's gossip. And chismosa is a gossiper. And it's always been gendered. Um, chisme is like a like what women do. They gossip. Chismosas are women, and it's it's seen as a bad thing, right? Like you shouldn't be engaging in that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of like younger Latinx women, we've started to reclaim that word. Something that was used to like continue perpetuating this idea that all we do is gossip and there's nothing of any substance that we talk about we uh, along amongst ourselves um, is reclaiming it because actually chisme is a form of support groups that a lot of indigenous women had when they didn't have a dv support group or a therapist they would all come together and talk about their lived experiences and that was the support they had and that's how you know the chisme thing came to be and that's why it was also weaponized so women wouldn't engage in that because that was a way of supporting each other so we know in domestic violence or an abusive relationship isolation is one of the tools right so if you deem Mm -hmm. the one thing that nurtures relationship between these communities and deem it as a bad thing you take that away from them and you isolate it and so even in that, right, like we reclaim things like I'm like, I'm a proud chismosa, right? Chisme is a way that I come in mm-hmm. community with other women and, and, you know, that I'm connected with. And we talk about our lives and we support each other. Um, and so we ha- we've had support groups for centuries, right? But we just were not right. calling it that. Right. It's, yeah. I love that. I love that. Um, reclaiming. You've given us a lot to think about, and it's it's time to wrap up. But before we go, do you have any final words of wisdom or like one big takeaway or if there was one main thing you would really want us to get or understand or do, um, what would it be? And and maybe there's more than one. So don't let me limit you. But like, what would be our what What do you want us to to make sure that we get the one thing that resonates? And again, I'm allowing my instinct to just guide me in what I'm going to say. The one thing that's been guiding mm-hmm. me in these past weeks when I talk about this is deconstruct this binary of good and bad. Because when we do that, we don't allow ourselves to grow. Right. And I understand the conversation feels like a very heavy topic and feels very for people like either is one or the other um just know that you you're not a bad person for wanting to explore and acknowledge the ways where you might have reproduced harm um that you can do really good work and still have a lot to to learn um Mm-hmm. that this is a journey that we're all you know a part of and there's you know there's no wrong or right as long as you're willing to sit and listen to your you know your community and what is needed um, especially in this movement I think it's really hard um, you know you you don't ever want to be seen as someone that's causing harm um, but it, we're all capable capable of causing harm, even if it's unintentional. It's about wanting to learn. And I think that's what decolonizing for me is, is I'm already in this work, but I still need to learn something. I still need to deconstruct some things um, so I don't reproduce harm. And so I think I've been telling everyone, like, just deconstruct this idea of, like, you can either be a good or a bad person. Like, we all have so much to learn still. So true. That's so great. Thank you so much for that. Magdalena, you're awesome. Thank you. Thank you for spending your time with us today. Do you mind if um, I briefly t- yeah, just talk ahead. about like the empowerment self-defense stuff that I'm like, just maybe like 30 seconds, just in case people. Oh God, <laughs> take your time. No, please talk um, about it. Talk about anything you want. Briefly wanted to share that. So, um, you know, like I mentioned, I have been doing anti-violence work for a while, but uh, since 2019, I became an empowerment self-defense instructor. Um, and with my co-facilitator, we um, facilitate workshops um, around the community um, and we have a trauma-informed lens. We work, we focus on providing 
these workshops for survivors. Um, we use it as a healing modality, not just, you know, as a way to learn new techniques. I mentioned I have been doing antiviolence work for a while, but uh, since 2019, I became an empowerment self-defense instructor. Um, and with my co-facilitator, we um, facilitate workshops um, around the community um, and we have a trauma-informed lens. We work, we focus on providing these workshops for survivors. Um, we use it as a healing modality, not just, you know, as a way to learn new techniques, but for survivors to reconnect with their body mm -hmm. and to feel powerful in their bodies. Uh, after trauma, people, you know, don't trust their bodies, don't feel strong. And, and we use empowerment self-defense, not just as like self-defense, but a way of healing and a way of reconnecting. Um, and we also incorporate decolonial practices when working with um, specifically the Latinx community, um, centering the knowledge of our communities. So if anyone's interested in the work that we're doing, um, our Instagram is soulwarriors underscore ESD. Thank you for hanging out and, and talking about this important topic and for spending your time with us today. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you again for inviting me. Um, this was a great pleasure. It's affirmation time. This is how I end every self-defense class. It's kind of cheesy, but it's very cool. And this is how it works. We're going to do like a little call and response. If you can say this out loud, if you can repeat after me, do it. Cause it's important. I think for you to hear your own voice. But if you can't, like if you're on a crowded subway or someplace where it's embarrassing, don't worry. You can also just say it inside your head. Okay, so I'm going to say something and you're going to repeat it after me. I'm going to give you space to do that. And at the end, we're going to say yes. Here we go. Repeat after me. I am worth protecting. I love myself. I belong. I deserve to take up space on planet Earth. I am a strong and powerful person. Yes! Woohoo! And hey, as a wrap up, Will you do me a favor? Will you do all the things that you do when there's a podcast? Like, will you tell your friends? Will you subscribe? Will you come back each week, communicate with me, review this podcast? Like, all those things to help get more bandwidth, help more people find out about it. That would be super awesome. Take a deep breath. You are amazing. Thank you for being with me. See you next time. <laughs>